and pretty much, like I said, we've gone through over quite a bit here. And it's really leading up to uh, Jesus and his disciples are going to uh, Jerusalem. And the reason they're going to Jerusalem is not because they're just, they just want to leisurely walk. Uh, they're, which, I don't know, I'm guessing that's not really why they're going. They're going to, see, to the Passover in Jerusalem. Uh, and, and with these passages here, uh, the background of it, he, he's been ministering in a rural area. Uh, called Galilee. It's predominantly small towns like fishing and farming, uh, rural people. He, he is there making his journey to the great city of Jerusalem, like I said, for this Passover feast. It's, it's a very celib- uh, like a, a celebration time. Uh, pretty much uh, it was this annual feast where God's people would travel usually by foot uh, to Jerusalem. Uh, it was where the temple was. It was the city on a hill, uh, the city built out of rock. Uh, it was where the Holy of Holies was, where the priests were, and sacrifices for sin were offered. Uh, and, and people came solely just to worship God. Uh, so with this Passover, you know, everyone's kind of headed in this same direction. It's, it's kind of like this weekend on Friday when I tried going to the softball game and I was late because everyone was leaving town or they were going or coming and going. All this traffic, it's kind of like that, a 4th of July weekend, a Memorial Day weekend when the streets are just filled. And actually these small towns that people are traveling through are starting to swell. They're stopping in these small towns to uh, get water, get food, maybe even have lodging there. Uh, And all these towns are swelling as they head to Jerusalem. And we're soon going to hear about uh, later in the scripture about Jericho. And uh, it, it specifically says Jericho, um, uh, where actually one of the big events actually takes place in this passage. So let's jump right in to Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 34. And uh, we're going to read uh, just 32-34 real quick here. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days... He will rise. Now, now Mark gives us this very distinct picture. And, and he kind of just says, you know, it kind of splits off in disciples and the rest of the crowd. And the disciples were what? They were amazed. They were, they were in awe of God, of Jesus, God-man, going through. And, and with that, there was also a crowd. And they were afraid. And I, I really kind of get lost in that. They were afraid. Maybe they were afraid because of they knew what was going to happen. You know, they, they knew the Old Testament scriptures. That's why they were headed to the Passover feast. Uh, they knew what was going to happen. And they were afraid. And Jesus pulls his disciples together and he gives them another pep talk. Now, this is the third time that we actually see this pep talk. Uh, so there's three things here. He, he's foretelling his death. In Mark 8:31. Uh, Matthew went over that a few weeks ago, Mark 9.31, Benji went through that, and now in Mark 10.34, he's foretelling his death a third time. And this is actually the most 
descriptive time that he actually talks about his death and his resurrection. And it's kind of this, this crazy pep talk. I've gotten a lot of pep talks, especially since I've been married. Um, you know, and I, I guess I specifically got one when I first met my wife's parents and, and family. And she kind of explained to me what they like or, you know, kind of how they are. And I, I was still overwhelmed. I remember driving up in their driveway and there was two deer hanging from the basketball hoop that were skinned clean, um, which was scary. Uh, and then the first time I met her, like actually hung out with her family, she went somewhere else and I went shooting with her whole family. So, and I thought I knew a lot about guns until I hung out with my in-laws, okay? Uh, and it was, it was kind of a scary experience. I mean, I've had those experiences a lot. I've gotten a pep talk when I was at camp. I was a counselor and this lady comes up and says, listen, and she hands me a packet about this thick telling me that her son has night terrors and he has this dream that, uh, that her son starts, acts, uh, he thinks that he's being chased. So he'll just start running. Uh, and they found him like downtown one time. <laughs> like, and so I'm hearing this and I'm like, <laughs> you know, getting kind of freaked out. And I, and I think that's where Jesus is going. He's, he's getting this pep talk and he's saying, hey, listen, this is what's going to happen in the days to come. Prepare yourself. This is what's going to happen. And the thing I really love about it is that he fulfills what he said. I mean, to the T, fulfills what he said. He says, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. That, that was fulfilled in 11.1, 13 to 37. The Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and scribes. It's fulfilled right there. They will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. All of those fulfilled. And this thing that he says, it's not, it was followed through fully. Followed through fully. And that really kind of sets, uh, I believe Jesus was setting them up. And just and after, with this pep talk, given, letting them know what's going to happen and how it was fulfilled, he's letting them know, hey, listen, uh, here's the focus. This is the focus of what's going to happen in the days to come. They really didn't get it, though. <laughs> you know, and, and we kind of saw that. Uh, we definitely saw that. And we move on to, to verses 35 uh, to 45. And, and we're just moving here. And, and with 35 to 45, I'm actually going to uh, read just a little bit in just, uh, in just a second here. Uh, but with verses 35 to 45, uh, he, he once again, there's something that happens right after he foretells his death. And we've seen this before. In 831, you guys remember, I remember Matthew talking about about a month ago. In 831, he foretells his death. He says, hey, I'm going to die. I'm going up to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. And Peter rebukes him. He says, Jesus, come here, come here, come here, come here. Um, This is not a good idea, okay? Um, let me just tell you, let's not do this, okay? Why don't we go somewhere else, you know, you know? And, and, and telling him this, and, and what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. <gasps> that's scary. That's pretty scary. In, in Mark 9:31, he, he once again says it again, and what happens? They start arguing about who's going to be the greatest. And then he goes again in, in here, and, and we're not disappointed. James and John, of course, uh, step up to the plate. Uh, and, and it's just crazy to look back and see what followed after Jesus 
telling of his death and his resurrection. So James and John, they come up to him, and let's read it. In verse 35, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want uh, you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand and to my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And right there, they of course come out with saying, uh, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Okay? Uh, I do that quite a bit. Uh, usually, I know me and Kelsey kind of do this, where uh, she'll say to me, Jess, do you love me? I, of course, say yes. Uh, I, in turn, say, I usually say, Kelsey, I love you. She usually says, what do you want? You know? <laughs> and, and, and so that's what Jesus is doing. And they say, do whatever we ask of you. And Jesus is like, what, what do you want? They go on to ask him. Uh, they go on to ask him here uh, that they want to sit one at the right hand, one at the left hand. They have this huge plan. Hey, guess what? What, what if you were on his right, I was on his left? I think it would be really good. That would be really great. So they want to talk to him about this. They had this deal. And, and the funniest thing that, that, that I found uh, is in Matthew 20, 20 to 21. Now, keep in mind here, this account is in every gospel except John. I think there's a reason for that, considering John in John says every time he talks about himself, he doesn't say John. He says, the one whom Jesus loves the most. You know, and remember when they're running to the, to the grave, he says, and Peter and the, the disciple that Jesus loved the most took off running after the grave. And once Peter got there, after the, the disciple who Jesus loves the most has already been there for a while, you know, I mean... And he doesn't, he doesn't really take it into account. It's just kind of funny. But, uh, but, but in Matthew 20, uh, 20 to 21, let, let's actually read it here. Matthew 20, 20 to 21. Because it, it kind of says something a little different that uh, is fairly funny. 20, 20 to 21. It says, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him and her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And then she goes on to ask what they just asked, or what uh, Mark says that they asked. They got their mother to do it. Their mother. I mean, th- this is actually uh, Salome, uh, Mother Salome. She was asking Jesus, and, and I know that she was there. Maybe it was they were asking her as a group. Um, but, but she was definitely there. It says that she knelt before. But, but uh, Salome actually believed to be Mary's sister. Those are the verses that actually back that up. So, so technically that would make James and John first cousins. Maybe that little family connection is going to be like, okay, this can get us in. Okay, you know. 
this can really help us out. But then, of course, he asked, uh, after they asked this, he asked them, uh, are you able to drink the cup or to be baptized uh, how I am baptized? Now, the cup here is a pretty common thing. Is it on here? There you go. The cup, uh, it actually, uh, it's kind of a Jewish metaphor. There's two... uh, main ways that the cup is used specifically in the Old Testament. The first is joy. Uh, those verses back up that. And then, and then the second one is divine judgment against human sin. And that's, that's definitely what we're talking about here, where Jesus is referring to. He says, uh, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism of which I am baptized? So he goes on in, in the cup... Uh, is talking about the second there, divine judgment against human sin. Are you able to take that cup? Now, Jesus was to bear the wrath of God's judgment, and and he's going to do that uh, soon. And he would drink the cup voluntarily. And and the baptism expresses a parallel thought. Being under water was an Old Testament uh, picture of being overwhelmed by suffering. Uh, Isaiah 43.2 is a great passage for that as well. But he has to be baptized by God who placed these sufferings on him. So this, the cup, the baptism, are you really able to do it? And their response is, well, yeah, we can. We can. And, and although they said we can, i I, I got to say that's very great. And uh, it, it showed that they were willing to fight and they were willing to be uh, to go go at it full full stride, but the reply also showed us that they really didn't understand what Jesus was telling them. Now Jesus applied the same cup and baptism figures to them in a different sense. Uh, he explains the the suffer and the sufferings. Uh, he says it again. Uh, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism which, which, which I am baptized, you will be baptized. He's saying, listen, this is going to happen. And once again, his prediction is fulfilled. Uh, his prediction is fulfilled. James martyred under Herod in Acts 12.2. He's actually the first disciple that was martyred. In Acts 12, too, he's, he's martyred under Herod. So he obviously went under that suffering, that persecution, that, and he was martyred. John, on the other hand, so his brother James, first to be martyred. His brother John, the last. John endured many years of persecution and exile. Many, many years. And it, it's, it's kind of said, uh, McDonald writes this, he says, it said that James died a martyr's death and John lived a martyr's life. And Jesus started explaining these positions in honor to the, in the kingdom. He started explaining to them, hey, listen, I don't think you understand what you're asking. And he starts saying the positions here. And I'm a big position person. That's, that's a huge fault of mine. But they want, they want to sit at the right and left hand of Jesus. And they want to be there. Jesus explained the positions of honor in the kingdom are not chosen randomly. They would be earned. 
It's good here to remember that admission to the kingdom is grace through faith. We know that. Admission to the kingdom is grace through faith. But position in the kingdom is determined by faithfulness to Christ. And after this, the other ten were pretty displeased. Okay, and let's read that. Verses 42 through 45. Actually, verse 40, uh, we'll just go there. Um, In verse 41, And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them uh, to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to serve, uh, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life, life a ransom for many. After this, the disciples heard this. They heard James and John kind of bickering about this and trying to, hey, Jesus, what about this? And they became indignant, it says. They were displeased. And, and looking at that the first time, I was like, of course, they were upset because he just told them what the focus should be, and they're completely off the wall now, trying to get position there. But the more I looked at it, I started realizing that, that the reason they were upset is because they didn't think of it first. <laughs> they had the same spirit. They had the same heart. They weren't mad that, that their focus is in the wrong place. They were mad that, that they were getting jumped and and they were jealous. Had the same exact spirit. And Jesus, of course, says, okay, this is a great time to pull everybody together. And he sees that spirit. He sees that same, uh, that same heart in his disciples. And he says, okay, everyone, come together. Come together. Let me, let me tell you something. And he explains to them, hey, you want to be great? You want to be great? You got to be a slave. Jesus is the ultimate example of that. We see it when he washes his disciples' feet. Uh, We see it when he's on the cross, mainly, that he is slave of all. Slave of all. Whoever wishes to be great must be a servant. The climax is Jesus being the ransom for us. That's the climax. Taking the place. I really, uh, I think of a few people when I, when I read this passage talking about, if you want to be great, you must be a servant. I, I think of Grandpa Phil. Uh, we've sent around the prayer cards. And, and I still remember when I was in college, I remember being out in the foyer, and this is when he was not moving around very well, okay? And I remember Grandpa stacking chairs, okay? Does anyone remember that? He starts stacking chairs while everyone else is just talking. Or he starts, he goes in the back, gets a broom and, and, and a, a nice little dust, dust thing, and he starts sweeping up the, you know, the mess that people are making. I mean, he, he is a servant. I, I think of, uh, specifically I think of, of Dave Glock, uh, and, and there's one thing that he said to me when I was uh, out in Colorado, uh, and, and he came and spoke one time at a conference, and he just kind of let me know, we were talking about service, we were talking about being a servant. And he said, you know what, Jess, you, you know when uh, 
you know you're a servant is when people start treating you like one. That's when you know. I was like, yeah. I get frustrated sometimes because I'm like, oh yeah, I'm serving. And then when I'm treated like a servant, I get upset. <laughs> you know, that's not the right heart to have. He says, you, you want to know if you're a servant? When people treat you like one. If you want to be great, you've got to be slave. You've got to be slave to all. Great examples there. And this whole ransom that he's talking about, uh, mainly with the ransom, it's the Greek word, which I don't know how to you know, say that exactly, but latrone is how it kind of translates down to. Uh, I'm hoping that's right. I got it off Google. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> so I'm hoping that's the right one. If it says anything else like soy sauce, I'm sorry. Uh, so, but, but it... But this latrone, it is actually the only time uh, that this word is used is, is during this event. That when Jesus says to give his life a ransom for those, for others, for many. That ransom that he's talking about, only used in this passage and in Matthew twenty twenty eight. That's the only time it's used. And what does it mean? Like I said, it says it means price of release. And I really like this quote. The reason for this different word... Uh, that the Bible only states for this one even is because it refers to a payment to affect the release of slaves or captives from bondage. To release these captives, these slaves, to free them. And we talked about the Jews were under opposition. I mean, they were under Roman rule. It's not Egyptians anymore. It's under Roman rule. And they're being persecuted. They're, they're actually getting taxed just to support this government that is persecuting them. And they wanted liberation. They wanted freedom. They wanted that release. They wanted to be, uh, to be released from bondage. That price of release he talks about. Great thing there. This also includes substitution. We are captives under power of sin and death. And we cannot free ourselves. Uh, Jesus' substitutionary death paid the price that set people free. That's the gospel. And, and, and he kind of follows it up with pretty much a key verse for the gospel in 45. Look at me again, 45, uh, 44 and 45. And whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. That line in and of itself, that verse, still confuses people to this day. They don't understand how this perfect person coming down to earth that is a God-man somehow, and he dies on the cross, and he somehow pays for our sins? But that's the gospel. That is the gospel there. And I really like how it kind of transitions here with, with all of these uh, these passages here. And, and really, uh, what I like, it goes into blind Bart, uh, Bartimaeus. I just call him Bart because I don't know why. It's a little easier to type Bart instead of Bartimaeus because it's kind of hard to type sometimes. But with and we move into blind Bartimaeus. And this is where we're actually going to spend most of our time uh, this morning, the rest of our time here. And with blind Bartimaeus, uh, he moves from... First we see 
Jesus foretells his death. He says, hey, this is the focus, guys. The focus is this. And then he moves into James and John in this whole event. And then he starts saying, if you want to be great, you must be slave. You must be the least. And then he brings it around again to blind Bartimaeus. And I think there's a reason for that. And we'll, and we'll get there. Bartimaeus. There's 46 through 52. Let, let's read uh, verses 46 through 48. As we said before, uh, and I'll read, uh, the disciples were, uh, and everyone was headed to Jerusalem for the Passover. And they're passing through Jericho here. So let's read it. 46. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples, and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. As Jesus passing through the town, he's passing through this town of Jericho. And, and, and let me just say that he sees this you know, there's blind. There, there's this blind man, poor beggar, uh, that that is yelling out his name. And let me just let you know. Once again, they're headed to the Passover. There's a great crowd of people. What is the best place, the best road to be on if you're a beggar? Is that road? You know, a bunch of people who believe in God are headed to the Passover in Jerusalem. I'm going to be on that road. So. He's not the only one there. There are many blind, probably, beggars there, people with maybe leprosy, many people begging. And they're passing through, and, and this blind Barnabas hears that it's Jesus from Nazareth. And, and I really don't know exactly. I know I've done those, you know, the, hey, close your eyes, and then you, your, your other senses start you know, being better or what, whatnot, you know, and, and I understand that. But, but think of, he hasn't seen Jesus. He's not looking at him. He hears it. And I'm sure he's heard about it. He's standing on this road. He's heard about it. And he cries out, Jesus, son of David. <laughs> that's not, that's the only time that he's actually called. That's the first time it's used in Mark. Son of David. We don't see it any time before that. Jesus, son of David. He says it again. Son of David. He says it twice. And they said, be quiet. Be, just, hey, stop. They rebuked him. They said, stop. Uh, listen, Jesus is very important. We're going up to Jerusalem. Just leave him alone. And what does he do? He cries even louder. <laughs> he says, Jesus, son of David. And, and and that's kind of what I do too. And I know I'm just I'm I'm using me and my wife for a lot of examples because I mean, I'm with her every day and she for some reason loves to see a big guy get scared. <laughs> Specifically at night when I'm going from the bathroom to the bedroom and she'll be like on the ground crawling around and like trying to grab my ankle and stuff because she wants to see me freak out. And when I, as soon as I walk out of the bathroom, I turn off the light and I realize that everything's dark. I'm, I start being like, Kelsey? Kel Kelsey! Kel Kel 
I start getting louder and louder and louder. And, and, and here's Bartimaeus getting louder and louder. And they're telling him, hey, be quiet. And he just keeps yelling. Jesus, son of David. He cries out. What does that mean? Here's a blind man who sees Jesus by faith. We can easily pass over that. We can easily pass over that. But it's very important, this title. And this would be a very significant theological statement in that time. They're under Roman rule. This is a declaration that Jesus Christ is the King of Kings. This blind beggar is making a declaration while God's people are under oppression. They were not free. They were mistreated. They were abused. Like I said, there was taxation on these guys. And they wanted a different king. They were sick of saying, Caesar is Lord. And they wanted that king of kings. They wanted that. They wanted their king to be Lord and God. And he cries out, Jesus, son of David. That's a very dangerous thing to say in that time. Because that is a statement. Jesus, son of David, is pretty much saying that he is the king of kings. And when you're saying that, that means you're saying, Rome, this Roman rule, you are wrong. And it's it's going in complete... Uh, it's pretty much going against Roman rule completely. But here he is, Jesus, son of David. Because David was that king. He was the best king that they had. I'm reminded of 2 Samuel 7. And, that, and that's really where it, it's uh, where we get the prophecy of the son of David, a descendant of David. And a lot of you know it, but, but let's go there. 2 Samuel chapter 7. And I'll just read a. Uh, chapter 7. And 12 through 14 we'll read. And he's talking to David here. He says, When your days. Uh, 12, I lost my. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring. After you, you shall come from uh, who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be my son. He shall be my son. The kingdom will endure forever. And this is. And when he cries out, Jesus, son of David, we get not only this, hey, Jesus, we get you are the king of kings. You are the one that is here to save us. You are the one to save us, the king of kings. The blind beggar is the one who actually got it. And Jesus hears this. And, and tr like I said, he wasn't the only beggar there. Wasn't probably the only blind beggar there. He hears Jesus, son of David, and he, is, and he hears it. And he stops. What happens to the blind man? We then read that Jesus gives uh, sight to him. He calls on him. He throws off his cloak, which he used for uh, when it was cold. He used it to warm him up. When it was hot, he used it as shade. Uh, 
But he throws off his cloak and runs to Jesus. And in Mark 10, 49 through 52, let's, let's read that real quick. 49 through 52. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called to the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi. That's a great statement, isn't it? Rabbi, Lord. This blind man sees Jesus, but he comes to him and says, Lord, Rabbi. Let's keep going. He says, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. How many blind beggars were there? How many got healed? One. In Luke's gospel, there was actually a second beggar there who was a part of that. How many beggars were there? And he heals Bartimaeus. And I, and I think it goes to the point where the, f- the first thing that he sees when he opens his eyes is Jesus. <laughs> the face of Jesus. That's amazing. If we have faith in Jesus, our old self will die. Our eyes will go from being closed to being open. And who will we see? We will see Jesus. 1 Corinthians 13.2 gives us uh, th- this promise to all believers. Uh, it says how we see in part, like we're looking through a kind of a fogged window on a cloudy day. But when we shall see him face to face, then we should see him face to face. The key is not that Bartimaeus has faith, but it's that he has faith in Jesus Christ. It's not enough to have faith. And I, and I really like this, this line up here. It says, it's not faith that saves, Christ saves. It's not faith that heals, Christ heals. It's, not, it's faith in Christ that saves and heals. And faith is three things theologically, if we really look at it. It's three things. We get truth. That's the first one, truth. It's a truth about Jesus. He's Lord, God, Savior, King, Christ, born a virgin, Emmanuel, He is our substitute. He is our Passover lamb. He is our risen Savior. He's a sinner's friend. He is the son of David, the king of kings. So it's the truth plus belief. And we got this belief. Not only do I know the truth, but I believe it. Not just knowing it, believing. Jesus is my substitute. He is my Lord. He is my God. He is my Savior. And then we got trust. It's truth, belief, and trust. Even when it doesn't feel like he's, he's there, I trust. When it feels like I'm, I've been abandoned, I trust. And I trust in what I believe, and what I believe is the truth. That is faith. That is this inward conviction that leads to an external action. This inward conviction leads to an external uh, action. And what comes first for Bartimaeus? What comes first? Faith. Faith precedes sight. It precedes sight. And, and I know I remember KT talking about this 
when, earlier when we read through a bunch of miracles that Jesus was doing. And we're going through, and the first thing, you know, they say, hey, I want you to heal this person. And he says, uh, have faith. He doesn't, he's not like, okay, let me do that real quick. The faith is the important part here that he focuses on. Faith preceded sight. The truth had to be believed and trusted. And then you see. Then you see. This is a blind man, and then he sees. He trusts, and then he's delivered. He experiences, he experiences two miracles at once, a physical and he experiences a spiritual miracle. Uh, when he says, Jesus, son of David, my Lord, that's a supernatural miracle in his soul, a supernatural miracle. And then when his eyes are opened physically, there's that other miracle. So he gets two of them, the physical and the spiritual. And how does he respond? How does Bart respond? hope you guys are okay with me calling him Bart, but it's just easier. How does Bart respond? He, he responds by worshiping. I want to go over to Luke uh, 18. This is the, where it actually happens as well. And I kind of like Luke's... Uh, I, I like reading Luke on this specific thing because Luke was a physician. And I think Luke was a little bit more descriptive about stuff because he's letting them know, hey, by the way, I was a doctor and this for real happened. Okay? <laughs> for real, he was blind, now he can see. Okay? So Luke 18, verse 43 Luke 18:43 And it says And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him glorifying God and all the people when they saw it gave praise to God. So what happened? How did he respond? Worship. Worship, worship, worship. And then he started following him right away. And I, and I kind of start realizing that sin is like blindness. It is in my life, at least. I feel like it is here. He was blind, but now he sees. It uses this, the analogy that sin is like blindness, a lot of Bible passages. Paul says in the Corinthians, he uses this, that they have been blinded. Uh, they have been blinded. They, they blinded the minds of unbelievers so they don't see the glory of God in Christ. See, non-Christians are not crazy. They're not stupid. They're blind. So we need to pray for a miracle. Jesus touches them and he opens their spiritual eyes just as he's opened our spiritual eyes. Sin is like blindness. And I think it kind of relates down to, to, to three things. Uh, we don't see God clearly. And that's, this, I think, is the unbelievers. They don't see him clearly. They don't understand. They're blind to seeing God, that he is all-sufficient, he is Savior, he is Lord. They don't, they're blinded to that because of their sin. We don't see ourselves clearly. Maybe some of you are like, uh, and I know a lot of people think, well, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. Or maybe you're on the opposite. Maybe you say, I am, I am wretched, I am horrible, I am, I am pathetic. I was once blinded when I was, uh, uh, oh, sorry, right here. Uh, we don't see ourselves for who we are. And I really like this. If you don't have any hope, you don't have any joy, 
and you don't have any Christ and you don't have sight. A lot of people think, uh, say, oh, well, I'm, I'm beyond salvation. They say, oh, I, I'm done for. Uh, they tend to say uh, that they don't need a Savior or they tend to say that I'm beyond it. And that one of those leads to pride. One of those leads to pride. One of them leads to despair. Neither of them lead to Christ. We don't see ourselves. We're not damaged goods. We, we are not beyond hope. And then lastly, we don't see ourselves clearly. We don't see others clearly. We don't see others clearly because of sin. Some of you look at people and you think that they're beyond hope. You think they are never going to change. Once our eyes are spiritually open, we see people as Christ sees them. We should be. And it gives a heart of compassion because we remember, I once was blind and they are blind and, and God can do a miracle. He can do it. He can do this miracle. I, I'm kind of reminded of a, a really good theologian, that uh, Cody Bonnet, who happens, I say theologian, he also happens to be the lead singer of my favorite band. Um, but it's better when you say a theologian, right? Isn't that better? Um, but but he has this line. He rewrites the words Amazing Grace. And he says, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. I know it saves, but is it changing a wretch like me? And then he says, Oh, how sweet the sound. I once was blind, but now I just look away. And, and that's how I feel like I am. Sin blinds us from what God is showing us, what the focus is. We see it in James and John, in the disciples. Their sin of pride, of selfishness, blinds them from what the focus is. Going up to Jerusalem and, and God being, sacrificing himself for our sins. That was the focus. We're blinded to it. And we see, we don't see God clearly. We don't see ourselves clearly sometimes. And we don't see others clearly. I, I struggle with that. When I'm, my coworkers, some of my friends, even some of my family, maybe they're not believers. Uh, most of them are not believers. And, and I, I, I start thinking, well, listen, if they really want to come to Christ, they're going to come. And I just start being lackadaisical. And the selfishness takes over. And I start justifying what I'm doing. Sin is like blindness. I see it throughout the whole scripture. I mean, you, you really look at it. Jesus gives us the focus, 32 through 34. James and John are blinded by their sin. They're blinded. Not only them, but the disciples are blinded by it. And then he says, hey, listen, you want to be great? You got to be a slave. And then we see Bartimaeus being healed. His reaction is to worship. And he just follows him. And, and the, a very interesting thing that, that, that I, I didn't realize is that Bartimaeus, it's the only time that he's mentioned in the Bible is in Mark. The other two times that they record this miracle, they don't say his name. And the more I, I looked into it, I started looking at the church history. The reason is because Bartimaeus was a a, a pretty cool dude in church history. When it first happened, he was there at the cross. He was there when he was resurrected. He was a key figure in the early church. And Mark is bringing out, hey, 
he's telling this story to these people. And he's letting them know, hey, Bartimaeus. They're like, oh, Bartimaeus? He was blind? He was changed. And he started following him right away. Like that. Didn't ask any questions. We, we read about the rich man last week. And he says, I want to follow you. And Jesus says, well, go sell all your things and then follow me. He says, no, no, no. That's not how it's supposed to be, Jesus. Okay? That's not how, it, uh, that's not how I want it to be. Okay? And he started justifying his actions. Bartimaeus throws off everything and starts following him. Following him eventually to the cross. All the way to the cross. We see that. And, and just now we're actually going to have a chance to, to actually sing one last song. And, uh, and the worship band is going to be coming up. The worship team is going to come up here and do that. So uh, as we conclude, I, I just want to pray. And, and let's all just close our eyes. And, and let me pray for you guys. Father God, as we close our eyes, we remember that apart from Jesus, we are spiritually blind. We don't see you. We don't see ourselves and we don't see others. We are blind. Lord, thank you for giving us spiritual sight. Thank you for opening our eyes spiritually so we might see Jesus. That we might see ourselves and our sin. And that we might see others. That we might know that there is no hope in us but in Christ. There is complete hope for us. God, as our eyes are closed, we remember those who are still blind. We pray that you would open their hearts and minds and forgive myself for the times and, and us for the times that we've been angry, we've been mean, we've been pushy, rude to people who are blind instead of being sympathetic, compassionate, patient, and prayerful. Holy Spirit, we ask you to remind us of this magnificent spiritual truth taught through a physical story that you open blind eyes. So God, every time we open our eyes, please send the Holy Spirit to remind us that Jesus opens blind eyes. God, every morning when we're tired or frustrated or complaining or ungrateful and our eyes open, let us start with worship and thanks. May that be the first thing that we do when we open our eyes. And every time we Every time we rub our eyes, every time we open our eyes, every time we squint, God, please remind us of this great story and let us remember that we were just like blind Bartimaeus. Pray all these things in your name. Amen.